You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. If you're here online, welcome. Wonderful, wonderful worship this morning. Praying for a mission team. It just doesn't get any better. Uh, It's really good to see all of you. Uh, A number of years ago, a man named Richard was on his way to church to meet his wife and son within the hour, but he never showed up. And the reason he didn't show up is because as he was walking in the streets of Bucharest, Romania, in the 1940s, the Russian communists came up and grabbed him and put him in the car and kidnapped him and took him to prison. Now, Richard had not done anything wrong except that he loved Jesus Christ and was very outspoken about that. And the communists had a problem with that. And now the Russians had come into Romania in 1945, and they came in with the message that, hey, communism and the church, we're going to work together. Everything's going to be great. You're going to be happy. We're going to be happy. And we'll just coexist together. And Richard was a very sold-out evangelical pastor who loved the Lord. And he said, yeah, I, I don't see it that way. Yeah, I see the gospel and communism being totally distinct And they do not affirm each other. And so uh, there was going to be a clash at some point. That clash happened uh, one day when the Romanian clergy and the Russian leadership gathered together. And there were about 4,000 people present. And Richard and his wife, Sabina, sat up in the balcony. And they listened as the Russian leadership just gave their vision for what the church is going to be like. And we're going to raise your pay. And everything's going to be great. And they sat up there in horror, listening to what was happening. And some of the the Romanian clergy were speaking out. They were clapping. And they thought, oh, my goodness, what is happening to the church? And Richard's wife, Sabina, said, stand up to her husband. Stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. And he was just distraught as well and said, if I do, you will not have a husband. And how about this, guys? She said, I do not need a coward for a husband. And so he stands up and he speaks out and they invite him to come down and he comes down and goes to the podium and he has the microphone. And at first they were encouraged. They thought, oh man, a guy like Richard Wormbrand is as highly esteemed as he is in this country. He speaks in behalf of us. Boy, we're set. But that's not what happened. In fact, he said, hey, We're not here to elevate any earthly powers. We're here to worship God. We're here to worship Jesus. We're here to give our total loyalty and devotion to him. Well, his microphone was cut off just like that. And the Russians were furious. And that's what led to his kidnapping on February the 29th, 1948, that cold day. And after they kidnapped him, they got him in the car and he was smiling. And he kept asking, "What, what date is it? What date is it? And they told him February 29th, they were so irritated. Like, why aren't you asking what date it is? And he said, I remembered God had said 366 times in his word, do not fear. Even on on the leap year, God had given him a word not to fear. And so he had a peace about what was happening. But shortly after, they came for his wife as well. And they took her and they put her in a slave labor camp. They had a nine-year-old boy at the time. And if you just looked at the situation from a human perspective, you would say, man, this looks hopeless. Here's a boy. How's he, what's he going to do? He goes to live with another family. How's he going to make it without his parents? Here's Richard and, and Sabina, two different places. They don't even know if the other one's alive. 
And what's going to happen to Romania under the grip of communism? The whole situation just appeared hopeless. And if, if we're honest, we haven't experienced anything like that. But there are times where we feel hopeless as well. It could be a physical situation, financial, even the way we look at our country today, spiritually. We go, man, is there any hope? If you look at what's happened in the last seven or eight years, morally, sexual revolution, you look at these things, you go, what, what is happening? There's an article published just last month in Christianity Today entitled, Decline of Christianity Shows No Signs of Stopping. It's talking about our country. Pew Research did a study and they determined that or, or discovered that 64% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. But they projected into the year 2070 and they saw the projection is less than 40%. So we're slowly becoming a culture of unbelief. Now, we, you and I know that God can change lives because he's changed our lives. But the question is, how do we engage a culture of unbelief with the gospel? What are we to do? How do we do that when people are losing interest in God? And that's what we're talking about this morning. We've already read the text in Acts 16. So if you'll join me there, Acts 16, 25 through 34. And I want to share with you four ways that we can engage a culture of unbelief with the gospel. Now, Paul is on his second missionary journey in Acts 16. You remember he was in Asia Minor earlier in the chapter, and they wanted to stay in Asia Minor, but God gave him a vision of the man of Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so they concluded, hey, God's calling us to go preach. And so they come on into Macedonia. The first major city that they come to is Philippi. They would have landed in Neapolis, which is modern-day Kavala, and about 10 miles northeast of there is a city called Philippi. Now, Philippi is important for three reasons, at least three reasons. The first, it has geographical significance. Um, about the year 130 uh, B.C., they completed the highway that goes from Constantinople in the east to Rome in the west. Um, and there were some, you have to take water for part of that, but it connected the east with the west. And so trade became a big deal and Philippi was close to the road. And so its economy boomed. It was known for its gold. Um, it had springs there. It's a, a very beautiful city. Now, so it was important geographically. It was also important polit politically because it was a Roman colony. So the, the, ro the rules that applied in Rome, they applied there in Philippi. The way they did law, their tax code, all of that was based on what happened in Rome. And a lot of its residents were retired military. They would retire and they'd go to Rome. So you had a people that were very loyal and highly devoted to the Roman Empire. The next thing, it was spiritually significant. Now, it's spiritually significant because we don't know of any believers that were in Philippi. Can you imagine moving to a city where no one knew Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? That, that was Philippi. Maybe there was someone, but we don't know for sure. So the, here they go into an unreached area, the first city in Europe that they're going to, and God sends them there to share the gospel. Now, we have more scripture written about Philippi than any other city on Paul's second and third missionary journey. Now just think about that for a minute. More than Corinth, more than Thessalonica, more than Berea, more than Athens. We have more on Philippi. And the question is why? What is God trying to teach us about what happened in Philippi that we can apply to our lives? Philippi was an unreached city, and there's three particular people that Luke zooms in on. 
And each of these people, two of them are women, they come from a different country and a different social class. So one of them is Lydia. We read her in Romans or uh, Acts 16, 14. And it says, Lydia, Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. She was a seller of purple goods. Only the wealthy could afford purple goods. So she herself was wealthy. She's from Asia Minor. And we see her, and it says, the Lord opened her heart to the Lord. So God opened her heart, and it says she was baptized. So Lydia was saved. So that's the first person. The second person is a slave girl. We don't even know her name. But she was... Uh, uh, she had this spirit of divination, it says. She was um, inhabited by this evil spirit. And she followed Paul and Silas around. And she said, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's what she was saying. And she just kept saying that. She's just following them around. And it says that Paul was greatly annoyed. Doesn't encourage it. Even Apostle Paul got, was greatly annoyed. We all get annoyed at times, but he, he got annoyed at what she was saying. And so he commands the spirit to come out of her in the name of Jesus. The spirit comes out. So that's the second girl. Now I believe, we're not told she was converted. I believe she was not just delivered, but converted. So that's the second girl. Now the people who were working with her were not very happy about this. She was poor, a poor Greek slave girl. So that's the second person. Now, the people were making money off her because the word really means she was a ventriloquist. So she's predicting the future, and people are making money off of that. So when they find out what has happened, hey, she no longer has the spirit that can benefit us, they were furious with Paul and Silas. So they manhandle Paul and Silas. They take them to the, the Agora, the public marketplace there in Philippi, and they be begin accusing them. I'm just setting the context up for you. This is in, right up here. They, they, they accuse them. They use racial slurs. Hey, these men are Jews, and they're, 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 they're upsetting our, our, our city. They're, they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans um, to accept or practice. Now, remember, you're dealing with a city with a bunch of retired military men. They're not going to put up with this. And so immediately they, all right, yeah, let's, we don't need them around here. And so they start beating them with rods. Now, Paul and Silas had no chance to defend themselves. They're not given a jury. They're not given a trial. They're immediately assumed guilty, and they're beaten with rods. And when they had afflicted, verse 23, many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer, there's our third person, slave girl, Lydia, now the jailer, there's our third, we don't know his name either, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, at this point, He's just doing his job. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastening, fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, a, this prison would have had two, two rooms, the outer prison and the inner prison. The outer prison would have had a hallway and would have had rooms, as you might imagine, around the hallway. Like if you go to jail today, there's cells maybe on both sides. In the outer area, air and light would get in there because of the hallway. You could look down the hallway if you were in the, in the outer cell and you could see the inner cell. The inner cell was over here and it had a door right here. You open the door, that was the only way light could get in here. In the inner cell, there is nothing happening in here. There's no light, it's musty, and there's no air. It's dark, the only light comes from that door. When that door is shut, there is no more light. We have a, 
I don't know, we have a picture of it. That's it, that's, that's it right there. That was earlier this spring when we were in Philippi. Of course, it would have been covered at the time, but that's what they think was the, the place where Paul and Silas were when this happened. Now, in this inner prison, it says they put them in stocks. The word for stocks is timber. It's a piece of wood. It's the same word that's used in Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as, as it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. That word for tree is the same word here for the stocks. The stocks had five holes in them, two for your wrist, two for your ankles, one for your neck. So they're in stocks, they're bloody, they've been beaten, they've got wounds on their backs that have not been cared for, and now they're locked up into these stocks. And I wonder, we're not told, but I wonder as they're there, were they thinking about Jesus who was also hung on a tree? Are they thinking about Jesus? Are they thinking, man, I remember how Jesus was filled with love. Jesus showed compassion when he was on the cross. Jesus forgave when he was on the cross. Jesus took care of his mother when he was on the cross. John, she's your mother. Mary, Mom, she's, he's your son. Uh, Jesus did that. So maybe, maybe we need to do the same thing, Silas. Let's do what Jesus did. We're not told that, but I, I, I think that's probably what happened. So they're there. Now you have the context. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas do something that's unheard of. Now, midnight would have been the darkest time of night, the time when the sun is farthest from the horizon, halfway between dusk and dawn, the darkest time, no light, musty, suffering, aching. There they are. You would expect to hear complaining. You might expect to hear fussing, cursing, all, all the things that you might think people might do that are in pain, that are, that are just stuck like this. But instead, it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Alexander McLaren wrote, these birds could sing in a darkened cage. Midnight is the darkest time, and here they were praying and praising God. The, the word for singing really means an ongoing singing. This wasn't just one verse. And they were, they were singing. They just kept going and kept going and kept going. And it, the phrase really, really literally means praying they sang hymns, praying they sang hymns. The idea is that they were praying and asking things of God, but they were also praising God and worshiping him. The two go together. It's not just one or the other. They both go together. Now we're not told what they were praying or singing. I believe it was the Psalms, specifically Psalms 140 through Psalm 143. Psalm 142 is in the middle of that, obviously, and it's, it's the Psalm of David. Listen, David was in a cave when he wrote this psalm. David said this, Psalm 142, verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And maybe as they're stretched out, that's what they were saying. God, I worship you. You're my portion. You're my portion in the land of the living. I feel like I'm dying, but you're my portion in the land of the living because I'm going to be with you at some point. Now, we're not told that they, they were praying for deliverance. We don't even know if they thought they would be delivered. Peter had been delivered in Acts 12. But remember, Paul had been there when Stephen was stoned in Acts 7. Remember that? They laid their garments at, at the feet of a man named Paul, or Saul, it says. 
He was there. So Paul may be thinking, hey, this is it for us. I, we may not be getting out of here, but I'm going to praise God anyway. I'm going to worship him. The early church father, Tertullian, wrote this. The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. Romans 5.3 says, Paul wrote, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. He's living out what he's, what he's writing. Notice the last part of verse 25. And the prisoners were listening to them. Oh, don't you know they were? Remember, this is an unreached city. First time the gospels come to Europe. And these people in the outer prison, uh, they don't even know what they're talking about. But all of a sudden, they're, they're praying to this God, and they're, they're actually happy, they're joyful, they're hurting, but they're singing. You imagine what they were thinking, like, who are these men? And who is this God that they're, they're talking about? Who are, they, who are they singing to? How can they do that under such pain, under such duress, in the, in the inner cell of all places? How, how can they just, how can they sit there and worship God? The word for listening means to listen with pleasure as to music. It's like being at a symphony, a, a, a nice orchestra, something that you think, man, I just love to listen to that. It's calming, it's relaxing. That, that, that's, that's like what it was listening to them. It's like they're listening to a concert, listening to men praise God and worship God. One source wrote this, when unsaved people see Christians rising above circumstances, and glorying in the Lord, even in the deepest trial, then even the unsaved realize the Christian has something in knowing Christ to which they are strangers. They realize, I, I don't even know what they're doing. I, that, I, I don't have that. That's not in me. Now, I want to share with you four ways that the gospel can penetrate a culture of unbelief, okay? Here's the first one. It's real simple. We praise God in imperfect places. We praise God in imperfect places. Now, our tendency is to praise God in the perfect places, right? We wait until we get the job. We won't wait till I get that promotion. I'm going to wait until the sickness is over. I'm going to wait until the wayward child comes home. I'm not going to praise him in the midst of this because I don't know what's going to happen. That is our tendency. I'm not going to praise him in the sickness. I'm not going to praise him in the pain. I'm not going to praise him when my spouse says I I'm walking out. I'm not going to praise him then. I'm going to wait until everything is perfect, and then I'm going to praise God. When was the last time you spent more than five minutes just worshiping and praising God? Yes, there's a place to ask. We, we are told to lay our requests and cast our anxieties upon God. When's the last time you just spent more than five minutes just worshiping God, just thanking him, just saying, God, I just thank you. You're awesome. You are all powerful. Just worshiping him. I was so blessed. Uh, I don't know, two and a half or so weeks ago, we had a couple in our church have had a surgery uh, the wife was having surgery, so she asked a group to, of us to pray for her. So we spent about 45 minutes or so praying and reading scripture, people sharing scripture, just a time of encouragement. And, um, and I, I went to minister to her, but, that, but to them, and they ministered to me because this lady had already had a previous surgery and the surgery didn't go as they thought it might go. And there's frustration. And then well, they were told, hey, we can't do anything else for you. And this couple could have had a different attitude, but they, had, they were thankful. They thought, hey, because that happened, now this is a possibility over here. And they went, and the surgery, praise God, went very well. But I was so encouraged that in the midst of the trial, they weren't saying, hey, we'll praise God when the surgery's over. We'll, we'll thank God when it's done, when I'm healed. They're in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the uncertainty, 
in the midst of, hey, we think this will go well. We, we don't know. We're going to praise God anyway. That's, that, that's what these men are doing. They're, they're worshiping God in the midst of this. In this month's edition of Christianity Today, Jen Wilkin wrote an article entitled, Where is the Praise in Our Prayers? She said in her family, they like to celebrate birthdays, just like you do as well, I'm sure. She said they'll have a nice meal, and then there'll come a time they cut the cake. And as they're passing out the cake, the birthday honoree will hear what every person at the table thinks about them. They'll, they'll, they'll share, hey, you know, man, I just really appreciate da-da-da-da. I, I love you because, the, and they just sit there and encourage them. She said that's a tradition in their family. She, Jen, Jen wrote this. It's our annual act of adoration. We take our time with it, multiplying words, watering the soil of a soul for another year of fruitfulness. Lord willing, we remind them and ourselves of what is true and lovely about them and of who knows and believes these things the longest and the deepest. She was saying that our prayers to God should also be filled with that type of adoration, that type of worship. But she said, typically, our prayers just become requests to God that take over like kudzu with a little thanksgiving and confession fighting for sunlight here and there. She said, our praise to God is more often salutation than adoration. A quick hello before we're off to the real business of asking. I encourage you, take, carve out some time today. Spend some time just worshiping God. Spend some time just praising him. And let me give you a little primer for that. Psalm 103, I read this in my devotion time recently. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Why, why, why should the psalmist bless the Lord? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are his benefits? He gives you six right here. This is in like two verses. Who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. There's six reasons right there to praise God. Man, spend some time on that today. God, thank you for crowning me with your steadfast love and mercy. Thank you for redeeming my life from the pit. Lord, thank you. If you go on, there's more in there. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or pay, repay us according to our iniquities. He just goes on and on. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. And you read that, man, that's how that fuels our prayer. That's how we learn to pray, just reading the Psalms. Well, the second way the gospel can penetrate a culture of unbelief is found in verses 27, 28. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. Now, earthquakes were common, but I believe this was supernatural. That God sent this in response to their prayer and their praise. So God sends an earthquake. It opens the doors. It loosens the chains that are on them. Now, all of a sudden, they're free. And you would expect, if you've been locked up, that you would say, hey, I'm out of here. I, I'm free now. I'm no longer bound. The jailer's nowhere around. Uh, but that's not what happens. The, the prisoners had their chance to escape, but they did not. And so the jailer, once he realizes what's happening, he thought, I'm done. Um, I, because a jailer who lets people go, is now he's liable for the same type of treatment that they were going to endure. So he's thinking, well, I'm gonna, they're going to execute me. So I might as well end my own life so I don't have to be shamed publicly. He was probably a retired Roman soldier, possibly a centurion. He knew about duty and honor and loyalty. So he thought, you know what, I'll just end my own life so nobody else will take it from me. But at that moment, Paul cried with a loud voice. Now, how did Paul see him? I have no idea. Maybe he saw a silhouette. Maybe God just, 
spoke to him, I don't know. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. The jailer couldn't believe it. What kind of prisoners refuse to escape when you have a chance? Here's the uh, second way. The gospel can penetrate a culture of unbelief. We must begin by focusing on one person. It's so simple. We must begin by focusing on one person. Paul and Silas can't reach all of Philippi from the jail, but they can reach the jailer. They can reach the one person. So there they are focusing. They realize, Paul and Silas realize, hey, something, God is doing something here. God's working in this man's heart. So I'm going to be attentive to the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to, I'm going to, be, I'm going to focus in on one, this one person. One source said the miracle, that is the earthquake and the release of the prisoners, was not done so the prisoners could escape, but so that the gospel could advance. So who is one person that's in your life right now that you can begin focusing on, that you can begin praying for, that you can reach out to? Someone at your job, someone in your neighborhood, someone that you run into in the gym or the coffee shop that you can just begin praying about. And then when you see them, be more intentional about having a gospel conversation. So we may not win the whole nation to Christ. We may not win a whole city to Christ. Probably not your whole neighborhood, but you can reach one person. That's what Paul and Silas were doing. Hey, I'm going to focus in on this one person. And we don't even know his name, but he's important to God. And and we're we're going to reach out to him. Well, the jailer, jailer calls for lights, rushes in, trembling with fear. I believe the, the jailer's under conviction. He's under conviction that he, he's done something wrong. Now, maybe he mistreated them when he put them in the stocks. And he's realized, hey, I mistreated these people. I don't, I don't even know their name. I don't even know anything about them. Um, I, I also believe that what's happened here with, with, with the, um, the poor slave girl, remember she was saying, these men are servants of the most high God. They proclaim to you the way of salvation. He had heard that and he's going, hey, if these guys proclaim the way of salvation, then I need to ask them how to get there because clearly they can tell me. If they're, if they're, they, they're proclaiming it, they know how to get there. So he's, he's curious. He's under conviction. Um, this, this earthquake has rattled his soul and now he's asking the most important question in life. Question that I hope, I hope you've considered. I hope you've answered, you've asked and answered this question as well. It's easy just to go through life and not, not consider this question. But he, he, he's, he's wondering, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, Philippi was a religious place. The Romans were, they worshiped all kinds of gods. In fact, when they would take over a Greek city, Greeks had all these gods. They would just, hey, let's just add that to our gods. And there was just gods everywhere. So what, what's another god? But apparently, he was unsure of his salvation. It's a simple yet profound question. So he has a spiritual need, and he's been shaken, literally, and uh, spiritually. And so he comes to them. What must I do to be saved? Hey, people are still asking that same question. They may not phrase it that way. They may phrase it as, man, where can I find satisfaction in life? Where can I find purpose in life? What they're really saying is, where, what can I do to be saved? What can I do to be delivered from my endless turmoil and lack of peace and lack of contentment in my life? So here are Paul and Silas. They've they've got the answer. It's 11 words in the Greek. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The gospel has always been about believing in Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul said to Cornelius in Acts 10? 
Paul said, or I'm sorry, Peter, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Remember Paul wrote about Abraham in Romans 4? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The gospel has always been about believing in Jesus Christ. And so it just quick, succinct, you know, Paul didn't go, well, now wait a minute, jailer. We, uh, let's go take a tour of the Old Testament and let's, let's talk about apologetics and let's talk about why the creation was six literal days instead of thousands of years. Let's talk about the manuscripts of the Old Testament and how many errors are there. He didn't do any of that. He just said, believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the gospel. And, and, and so it, he just, period, nothing, there's nothing to add to it. There's no purgatory. There's no um, works. There's not personal connections. He just said, believe in Jesus. Now the question is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? This term for believe means more than just intellectual knowledge. It doesn't mean I'm just aware of Jesus. That's not what it means. It means more than intellectual awareness. It means acceptance of the Christian message. Personal acceptance of the Christian message. That's what it means to believe. So you might wonder, what is the Christian message? Well, if you, there's a lot of places we could go for that, but the closest one that I know of is in Romans 3. So flip over to Romans 3 with me. Romans 3, 23 through 25. This is the Christian message. And there's three components to it. Three parts to it. The first is found in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the first component, that we must admit that we are all sinners. We are born as sinners. You may be a great person. You may be nice. You may be generous. You may be very successful, but you are a sinner just like I am. We're born in sin. In sin, my mother conceived me, David said in Psalm 51. So we're born declared guilty. We are guilty of our sin and separated from God, every single person. All of us are. We're all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So we have to admit that first of all. But thankfully, God just didn't leave us in that state. Verse 24 and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, if you're a Catholic, justification is a process. That's why, there are, that's why there's a sacramental system. You gotta do this, do this, do that. You receive grace through those. If we're Protestant, we believe that grace is a legal declaration. It's just like, it's literally a legal term of a judge like dropping the gavel saying not guilty. That's what God does when we place our faith in Jesus. He looks at our faith and says, not guilty. Barry is no longer guilty of his sin because he has received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. We're justified by his grace. It's a free gift that God gives us through, well, how does he do that? Who paid the price? Well, keep reading. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A price had to be paid. And Jesus Christ said, I will pay the price. Jesus Christ in John 10, 17 said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He, the father, he says he put him forward, but he didn't have to shove him forward. Jesus said, I'll go. Somebody's got to go and I'm the only one that can do it. Now I'll, I'll do it. I'll go pay the cost. We talk about how free salvation is. It is free for us. It wasn't for him. It was a heavy cost. There was a high price. And it says, Jesus 
Jesus paid it. It says, God, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that word just means satisfaction by his blood. That is, the wrath of God was satisfied through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As Jesus died on the cross, through his perfect life, all of the sins of all of time were placed on Jesus Christ in that moment, on those six hours on the cross. And because of that, the wrath of God is satisfied. All the sins you read about in the Old Testament, the Canaanites, you read about the Babylonians. That's why Habakkuk, in his, little, in his book, Habakkuk the prophet, God says, I'm going to do something in your day. You wouldn't believe it even if I told you. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. And, and Habakkuk's going, the, the, the wicked Babylonians? He says, God, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. God, how can you just let this go? How can they get away with all of this? And God's answer in short was, they won't get away with it. They, they will be judged too, but I'm just using them as an instrument to punish my people. But all of the sins that you read about, you go, how in the world? Child sacrifice in the Old Testament, on and on and on. How did God just look over those and say, did he just excuse those? No, he did not. You have to keep reading. It says in his forbearance, his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He didn't excuse them. He was just waiting for that right moment. And in the fullness of time, Galatians says, God sent forth Jesus. And Jesus came and paid for all of those sins past, all of our sins now, all the sins that will ever happen, however long is left in time. Jesus paid for all of those sins. That's the middle part. That's the second component to the gospel. That, what does it mean to believe? First, we, we're sinners. Second, Jesus has paid the price. Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. God the Father is satisfied because of Jesus. Now, the final part is the, the middle of verse 25. To be received by faith. And that's the part that scares me the most. Because some of you have grown up in the South and you know all about Jesus and you've never received him by faith. We had a lady in the first service, early 20s probably, came forward as a child when she was seven, Went through the motions because that's what she thought her parents wanted her to do. Never received Christ until this morning. But praise God, she got saved in the first service. There has to be a time when we receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what it means to believe. It means to accept the gospel message. I could stand up here and I'd say, I've got four tickets to whoever your team is next Saturday. Hey, they're free. It doesn't cost you a penny. And you can look at them and say, man, that looks great. Oh, the, oh, the front row. Oh, sideline pass. You can ooh and all. But until you receive it, they're not yours. You can know all about Jesus, but until you receive him, he is not your Savior. You have to receive him to be your personal Lord and Savior. That's as clear as I know how to make it. And so believing in Jesus means to accept this gospel message. That's why when we do pastor chats, when I'm out in the community, sometimes I like to ask people, hey, how long have you been a Christian? And sometimes we hear this, oh, all my life. Now, I, I, th I think what people mean sometimes, especially if they're, I don't know, 50 or 60 plus, they might mean, I got saved when I was really young and I can't remember a time without Jesus. So I understand that. They really, literally almost all their life they've been saved. They can't really remember that. So that, that and I understand that. But it makes me nervous because you haven't always been a Christian. We're born sinners. So there has to be a time, whether you're five or 50 or whenever, that you repent and say, Father, I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. There has to be a time. 
And that's what he's saying, to be received by faith. And so that's what happened to the, the jailer. This was his time. Whether it was at the jail, or I don't know if it happened right then or if it happened at his house, but either way, that night he got saved. This is what um, Charles Spurgeon preached, January the 8th, 1860. This is what he said about, about faith in Jesus Christ. It's the leaving of the soul in the hands of Jesus is the very essence of faith. Faith is receiving Christ into our emptiness. Faith is receiving Christ with the understanding and the will, submitting everything to him, taking him to be my all in all and agreeing to be henceforth nothing at all. Faith is ceasing from the creature and coming to the creator. All right, so the third thing we must do to penetrate a culture of unbelief, we must clearly articulate the gospel. It's, it's great to invite people to come to church, but we got to clearly articulate the gospel. And if, if you go, well, I don't know how to do that. Hey, you memorize it, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved, you and your household. That, that, that's the gospel. Now, um, so the jailer now says, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come to my house? His house was either above the prison or around or, or close to it. Um, it says, and he took, that is the jailer, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. So he didn't do it before. When they first came to him, he didn't care about washing them then. But now God's changed his life. And, and he, he, he asked, um, he, he, he washed their wounds. And it says, uh, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, it says, verse 32, that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him. Now, the, the, my best way I know how to interpret, it, interpret that is they got to the house, and the jailer may have had some questions. Hey, you, you, said, you said believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord Jesus? What, what, what is sin? He, he had some questions. And maybe his children, maybe, you know, they, at that time they had extended families, like aunts, uncles, parents, in-law, they would be living together. And they may have had some questions as well. And so Paul and Silas sat there and they would have gone to the Old Testament and said, well, you know, the promised Messiah has been, been he was promised years ago and he, he came and he lived a perfect life and they would have explained all of that to him. And, and, and so he, the, he was saved. And now I see four visible proofs in the jailer's life that he was saved. First, he showed God's love to someone else. Now he's washing their wounds. I wonder if he just wept as he's washing them. Like, Lord, thank you for sending these men. Thank you for allowing them to be arrested so, so I could hear the gospel through them. Dr. Agent Rogers used to say, no change, no Christ. In other words, there's no change in your life, then you, you, you don't know Jesus. And this man, man, this man's different now. You got a hardened, retired military man. Now he's showing compassion. He's, he's washing, taking care of their wounds. Second, he was baptized at once. It's the first step of obedience in the life of a Christian. So I'm going to call it believer's baptism. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. He said that earlier in the book of Acts. So if you've received Jesus Christ as Lord, your first step is to go through believer's baptism. That's your first step. How, how, how can you expect God to give you leadership in all these other areas if you haven't obeyed what he's already told you to do? We're supposed to be baptized. So he was immediately. The third proof, he influenced others with the gospel. 
He's got these men in his home now. Now, now his whole family's there hearing about the gospel. Man, talk about starting a movement. This, this whole family gets saved. Not through his faith, but they heard the word too. And they believed too, each one of them. And, and they were baptized as well. And the fourth proof is that he displayed genuine joy. Notice that he rejoiced. This is not just like, oh, he's in a good mood. This is a deep-seated, conscious joy that pervaded his whole life. That's what the word means. It's a visible joy. If, if you and I know Jesus Christ, then there should be a joy in our life. This word for joy, for rejoice, it's in the book of Revelation in 19, verse 7, when it shows a picture of heaven and they're worshiping. And it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. That word rejoice is the same one here. So you get a little piece of heaven once you know Jesus Christ. I mean, there's just a joy in our life. And this man now, he's got it. And his whole family is rejoicing. And you, you look at this and you go, isn't this what we saw in Acts 2? Remember in Jerusalem at the end of Acts 2, and they're breaking bread together and they're, they had everything in common. And they're selling their possessions. That's what we see here. And it's not in Jerusalem, it's in the unreached pagan city of Philippi. Why the gospel? You have the gospel uniting people. You have the gospel breaking down barriers. And now these people are fellowshipping together. They're serving each other. They're, they're sharing the gospel. I'm sure they were praying. All of that happens because of the gospel. Now, the final way the gospel can penetrate a culture of unbelief, we must be willing to invest our personal time. And that, that can be the hardest one for those of us who have been Christians a while. We must invest, must be willing to invest our personal time. Just think about it. If around midnight, the earthquake happens, then they go to his house. They, who knows how long they had to talk, an hour or two? I, I don't know. They're answering questions. They're, there's baptisms. And now there's a meal. Maybe it's two, three, four in the morning. Now, if it's me, I shut down about nine o'clock at night. And I say, hey, we're going to do this meal tomorrow. You know, but not, no, they're willing. Paul and Silas realize something's happening here. God is at work. I'm willing to put aside my comfort. And maybe they couldn't sleep anyway because of their wounds. But they're, they're, they're willing to invest in someone else. One, one source said this, sometimes joy loses track of time. Uh, Rick Burgess tells a story. Uh, some years ago, he was, it was at nighttime, and he was with his, his boys. They had, had a sporting event, and he got a call that um, a family, a local family, had tragically lost a child. It was devastating, as you might, as you might imagine. Now, because Rick and Sherry have walked through that same road, um, God gave him an opportunity to minister through this. And so Rick went over to the, the, their home and was talking to the husband and who was not a believer at the time, but they talked for hours. Finally, around midnight, one in the morning, this guy said, you know, I just need God to give me a sign. And Rick said, he, he told the guy, he said, hey, I got to be at work at four and a half hours. Okay, I, I'm just, I'm really not that good of a person. And the fact that I'm here with you right now, that is your sign. God does love you. And he said, the man placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And to this day, is a committed follower of Christ. But see, it took personal time. It takes, it takes maybe we lose sleep sometimes. Maybe we're inconvenienced. Maybe we skip a meal. But, but we got to be willing to say, okay, I'll do it because God's at work. So you got a wealthy woman from Asia Minor, a poor Greek slave lady whose name we don't know, and a blue-collar Roman middle-class jailer whose name we don't know as well. We're all changed by the power of, of the gospel. Luke wanted to show us how to do that. 
And we can do it. Clearly articulate the gospel, focus on one person, praise God in imperfect places, and be willing to invest our personal time. Now, after serving two terms in prison that totaled 14 years, Richard Wormbrand was released from that communist Romanian prison. He had been beaten. He had broken bones. He had two years of of, uh, tuberculosis. He almost died. He was put in a room. They thought he was going to die. They cut into him and burned him 18 times. Yet he survived all of that. By the grace of God, it was a miracle. He survived all of that. And he was reunited with his wife and his son, who also survived. They eventually moved to the United States. He started an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. It's an international organization. And his goal was to speak up for persecuted Christians. And he wrote 18 books. God gave him a great ministry. But here's what he said. He was able to have compassion on those who tortured him. And this is why. Because he could see people not as they were, but as they could be. He wrote this. I could also see in our persecutors a future Apostle Paul and the jailer in Philippi who became a convert. Richard lived until age 91 and died in February of 2001. But all of that could have been different were it not for one person. There was a man named Christian Volks. And before he met Richard, Richard was, as a boy, he grew up Jewish. But by age nine, he was an atheist. uh, Or age 14, rather. His father died when he was age nine. By age 14, he considered himself an atheist. He even moved to Moscow and studied Marxism. And he he didn't believe that a God existed, but he was sad that a God of love did not exist. Or so he thought. Well, he got married to Sabina, and they, uh, he contracted tuberculosis. And so he went to a doctor, and the doctor said, hey, you need to go somewhere you can get fresh air. So he went to this mountain village. Now, in this mountain village was a man named Christian Volks. Christian Volks was a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. He was an old carpenter. And Christian Volks had been praying, God, please send me one Jewish person that I can win to Christ. Well, the worm brands show up. And Christian and his wife found out about it, and they, just, they jumped right on him. And they start showing the love of Christ to him. They take a Bible and hand to him. Now, Richard had read the Bible before, but not like this. And he starts reading the Bible, and Richard would just weep because he was encountering the God who loved him. And he said, you know what? These are not just words. They were, they were uh, flames of love is what he said. And he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And then shortly after, Richard's wife, Sabina, placed her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Christian Volks died in World War II. He never did live to see all that would happen. But can you think that investment, that prayer and that investment would outlive Christian for decades? He ministered to one person. Paul and Silas ministered to one person that day in the jail. What about you? Is there one person that you can pray for right now and say, God, would you give me an opportunity to share Christ with them very, very soon? Would you pray with me? For some of you, I'm not sure what your next step is, but it could be that you're just like the the lady that was in the first service. You've known about God, you've known about Jesus, but you've never received him to be your Lord and Savior. If that's where you are, my friend, I encourage you, I plead with you to admit your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved because of what he has done in your behalf.
Receive him now as your Lord and Savior. You can do that right where you are. You do it right now. This is between you and him. Others of you, you've made that decision, but maybe you say, you know what? I've not been living with intentionality. I've not been, I've not been taking advantage of opportunities to have gospel conversations. I'm certainly not praying for anybody to be saved. So maybe there's one person right now, somebody in your neighborhood, someone God's bringing to mind that, that you can reach out to, that you can encourage. I had a dream about a guy this week. I reached out to him. I'm hoping to have lunch with him this week. I'm trying to do my next step. What, what, what's your next step? Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you allowed us to hear the gospel. Thank you that someone loved us enough to tell us the gospel. And we worship you. And I just pray that we would obey and do whatever you're telling us to do right now. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.